Hello, and welcome to the Climate Change Weekly Podcast. On the podcast, I pick a few of the interesting stories from the week, dive into a topic of the week, and then I talk about some of the steps that you can take to help tackle climate change. It's the 11th of August 2019, and this week we'll be covering the IPCC land use report that was released in Geneva on Thursday. We'll be talking about blackouts in the UK that have happened in the last few days. I'll mention Greta Thunberg's surprise visit to the Hambach Forest in Germany. And I'll also talk about an article that caught my eye this week on the subject of oil exploration budgets and fossil fuel subsidies. For the topic of the week, we're going to be talking about sea level rise, which should be of interest to every listener, regardless of where you live. Okay, so what's the IPCC report all about? Well, governments challenged the IPCC to take the first ever comprehensive look at the whole land climate system. We did this, say the IPCC, through many contributions from experts and governments worldwide. This is the first time in IPCC report history that the majority of the authors, 53%, are from developing countries. So what were the key findings? The authors of the report found limiting global heating to below 2 degrees could only be achieved by reducing emissions from all sectors, including land and food. That will involve transforming food production and land management, given agriculture, forestry and other types of land use account for 23% of human-induced greenhouse emissions globally. The report finds that even the current levels of global heating are increasing a whole range of land-related risks, including soil erosion, vegetation loss, fire damage, coastal degradation, and declines in crop yields. What did the IPCC miss? Well, according to an excellent article in The Guardian, the report shies away from some of the big issues and fails to properly represent the science. As a result, it gives few clues about how we might survive the century. The problem is that it concentrates on just one of the two ways of counting carbon costs of farming. The thing it misses completely is how farming compares to the natural ecosystem that would otherwise have occupied the land. A paper published in Nature last year, but not mentioned by the IPCC, sought to count that cost. The official carbon footprint of people in the UK is 5.4 tonnes of carbon dioxide per person per year. But in addition to this, the Nature paper estimated that the total greenhouse gas costs in terms of lost opportunity for storing carbon that the land would offer were it not being used for farmers is 9 tonnes a year. In other words, if we counted the carbon opportunity cost of our diet, our total footprint would almost triple to 14.4 tonnes. Large parts of the UK experienced an electricity grid failure that was caused by two generators failing within a two-minute period. This resulted in traffic lights going out and rail services being brought to a standstill during a peak commuter period. Now, a similar event happened 11 years ago, and critics claim that the grid system failed to learn the lessons of the 2008 incident. So why am I talking about this? Well, to make the grid resilient to failures like this, you need additional power plants that are ready to come online almost instantly when other power plants fail. There can be a huge environmental impact of having such plants on standby. And in fact, the problem is similar to how the grid handles spikes in demand around peak times. The generation capacity has to be scaled to match the demand. And around the world, this is handled by numerous so-called peaker plants. Often these can be some of the dirtiest ways to generate electricity. Now, one environmentally friendly way to do this is a pump storage scheme. And in fact, I visited such a scheme in the UK some years ago. 
Now the plant was called Dunorwig and it sits inside a Welsh mountain. On the top of the mountain there is a lake and inside the mountain in a, in a space the size of a cathedral sit some huge turbines connected to the lake by enormous pipes. During periods of low demand the water is pumped up to the lake above and then when demand spikes the water is dropped down again and the plant can come fully online within 10 seconds. Another alternative is a grid scale battery storage scheme. Now in 2016 Southern Australia was experiencing some electricity supply issues and at that time Tesla's Vice President for Energy Products got people talking when he said that the company could fix South Australia's problems with blackouts in 100 days. Elon Musk was asked on Twitter can you guarantee the 100 megawatts in 100 days? In reply, Elon Musk said, Tesla will get the system installed and working 100 days from the contract signature or it's free. That serious enough for you? Now, as you'll hear in the next clip, the project was widely ridiculed at the time. Sitting among rustic scenes on a wind farm north of Adelaide, the Hornsdale Power Reserve, or Tesla Big Battery, has been mocked by critics since day one. By all means, have the world's biggest battery, have the world's biggest banana, have the world's biggest prawn. However, the plan went ahead and the world's biggest battery was installed within the 100-day time limit at a cost of approximately $100 million. And despite what the naysayers said, it has been a huge success, with estimated savings of $40 million per year, meaning it paid for itself within two and a half years. The battery has proved to be far quicker at reacting to demand changes than any other approach. The 10 seconds I mentioned with the Norwig was the quickest at the time. The big battery can react within about 250 milliseconds. Conventional generators can't match the way the battery makes small adjustments to power supply to keep the grid at the right frequency. Doing that on numerous occasions over the past 10 months as ageing coal-fired power plants in the eastern states have broken down. Absolutely, and, and not just shoring up South Australia, shoring up the entire grid. While undercutting the price big power generators charge for these frequency control services. It's basically providing much needed competition to a very concentrated segment of the electricity market. And we've been you know, quite pleasantly surprised and, and would encourage more of this technology into the grid. Last week, Tesla announced a new product called Megapack. And this is what they said in their blog post. Less than two years ago, Tesla built and installed the world's largest lithium-ion battery in Hornsdale, South Australia, using Tesla Powerpack batteries. Since then, the facility has saved nearly 40 million in its first year alone and helped stabilise and balance the region's unreliable grid. Battery storage is transforming the global electricity grid and is an increasingly important element of the world's transition to sustainable energy. To match global demand for massive battery storage projects like Hornsdale, Tesla designed and engineered a new battery product specifically for utility-scale projects called Megapack. Tesla can deploy an emissions-free 250-megawatt power plant in less than three months on a three-acre footprint. That's four times faster than a traditional fossil fuel power plant of the same size. Megapack can also be DC-connected directly to solar, creating a seamless renewable energy plant. Greta Thunberg, the Swedish schoolgirl that started the school climate strikes, made a surprise visit to the Hambach Forest in Germany this week. And since mining began in 1978, the Hambach has shrunk to only 10% of its original 13,500 acres. The rest has been cleared by the utility firm RWE. 
Unfortunately for the forest, it sits on top of a huge reserve of brown coal and lignite. The trees are felled and the forest floor torn up to reach coal deposits, leaving long gashes of open earth. The lignite, along with supplies taken from other mines in the area, is burned in nearby power stations. Three of those plants are among the ten biggest carbon dioxide emitters in Europe. Together, they make the region's coal the continent's biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. The last story I wanted to cover today revolves around oil exploration and fossil fuel subsidies. A recent paper in Nature shows that we have little hope of preventing more than 1.5 degrees of global heating unless we retire existing fossil fuel infrastructure. Yet far from decommissioning, almost everywhere, governments and industry stoke the fires. According to a report compiled by an organisation called Global Witness, the oil and gas industry intends to spend $4.9 trillion over the next 10 years exploring and developing new reserves, none of which we can afford to burn. Also, according to the International Monetary Fund, every year governments subsidise fossil fuels to the tune of $5 trillion, many times more than they spend on addressing climate change. In a report published on the 2nd of May, the IMF said that globally subsidies remain large at $4.7 trillion, or 6.3% of global GDP, in 2015 and are projected at $5.2 trillion, or 6.5% of GDP, in 2017. The largest subsidisers in 2015 were China, $1.4 trillion, United States, $649 billion, Russia, $551 billion, European Union, $289 billion, and India, $209 billion. The report goes on to say that efficient fossil fuel pricing in 2015 would have lowered global carbon dioxide emissions by 28% and fossil fuel air pollution deaths by 46% and increased government revenue by 3.8% of GDP. According to Forbes, the US spends 10 times more on these subsidies than on its own federal education budget. Forbes also points out that last year the world burned more fossil fuels than ever before. Now, just imagine if we could take the trillions of dollars being paid to fossil fuel industry in subsidies and divert the trillions of dollars that they plan to spend on oil and gas exploration and took all of that money and diverted it into renewable energy, improving wind farms, improving solar, improving big batteries and all the rest. Just imagine what we could do. We really have to educate as many people as possible about what's going on until we reach the point where these types of subsidies and further oil and gas exploration are just totally politically unacceptable. The topic of the week is sea level rise. So what exactly are scientists predicting in terms of sea level rises this century? John Englander, the founder of the International Sea Level Institute and author of the best-selling book High Tide on Main Street, Rising Sea Level and the Coming Coastal Crisis, explains why it's actually not possible to accurately predict sea level rise. We don't have a good answer, but the reason is surprising, and it's that we have potentially 200 feet of sea level rise of all the ice melted on Antarctica and Greenland. That's not going to happen for centuries, maybe 500 years, maybe thousands of years. The question is, how much could melt by the year 2050 or the year 2100? And there's no definitive answer because it's like predicting when the next San Francisco earthquake will happen or when the next mudslide will happen or the next avalanche. 
those kind of shifts of earth mass or mud or glaciers are not predictable to the normal standard. Okay, so the experts can't give us an accurate prediction, but what do they think will actually happen? The fact is, by the end of the century, we could be looking at 5 or 10 feet of sea level rise. We can't know the answer more precisely any more than somebody could tell you when the next major earthquake will happen in San Francisco. It seems surprising. It may seem like, well, we just don't know enough. But the truth is those big shifts of Earth and those big shifts of ice miles deep or high do not model to the normal precision that we would like to have. Now, given that lack of precision, what have the IPCC reports been saying about sea level rise? Well, here is an excerpt of an interview with Professor Peter Wadhams, who is the head of the Polar Ocean Physics Group in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge. The, the summary that goes to policymakers is overseen by politicians and, and they, they tend to weaken the predictions. So the, the worst case of this was, was sea level rise mm -hmm. and uh, the IPCC was predicting in 2007 uh, something like uh, 30 centimetres of sea level rise by the end of the century. So that went out to policy makers. They thought, oh great, we don't have to do that much. We, we can just raise the heights of flood defences by About 30 centimetres. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then at the last assessment, they, they took account of the fact that the Greenland ice sheet and Antarctic ice sheet are melting at an accelerated rate. And we now know that, that Greenland is losing mass at about 300 cubic kilometres a year and Antarctica is, is starting to lose mass, it's mm -hmm. up to about 100. And that's greater than any other source of, of water going into the ocean. And the more we measure processes in Greenland, the more we conclude that sea level is rising in an accelerated way because the, the melt of the Greenland ice sheet is accelerating. Now, given that acceleration, what does Professor Wadhams now believe is likely to happen? 30 centimetres has already gone to a metre and now a lot of a lot of glaciologists think it will go to two, three or four metres as the loss, as, as the sea level rise. By 2100 or so? Yes, or, by 2100. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, that would be pretty catastrophic. So in a situation where most glaciologists believe there'll be significant sea level rise by mid-century, possibly as much as a metre, and possibly approaching three to four metres by the end of the century, what should we be doing? Plan for the first three feet of sea level rise as soon as possible. And that simple guideline actually is very helpful. If it happens by 2060, we'll be prepared. If it doesn't happen until 2100, we have a little extra time. San Francisco is a great example. We know from the 1906 earthquake that the fault lines go right through the city pretty much. But the planning, what they do right now is even with all the strain gauges monitoring the fault lines, they plan on a Category 8 earthquake within 50 years having a 10% chance of probability. But we design for that worst case now, and we need to start doing the same thing for sea level rise, because it will be feet higher. We just don't know how soon. So if you live near the coast, think about what a one-metre sea rise would do to your area. In the city where I live, the whole central business district would be underwater without a significant investment in seawalls. But will we make that investment? If the sea has risen by one metre, it may well be obvious by that point that it will continue to rise, 
and probably at an accelerating rate. So it may be that although we could defend against one metre, three to four metres is just not practical, and the only alternative is to abandon whole cities. One city in the firing line is Miami. Because it's built on porous rock, seawalls will not prevent ingress of water. There's really no way to defend it. Each city and coastal community will be different, but many will need to be abandoned at some point in the next 80 years. Even if you live in land, you won't escape the consequences as global goods are delivered by sea and many of the world's ports will be completely inundated. The insurance industry has already concluded that waterfront property is too much of a risk and are refusing to cover flooding in many areas. In some countries, governments are underwriting the risk, but that will soon become unsustainable. In the last section of the podcast, I talk about some of the steps that you can take to tackle climate change. And given what we learned in the land use report at the beginning of the show, it's clear that we all need to drastically reduce the amount of meat and dairy we consume. That will be challenging for many of us, but if we at least know the impact of our consumption, we are better placed to make choices that minimise our personal contribution to climate change. The Nature paper I referred to earlier estimates that the carbon cost of chicken is six times that of soya, while milk is 15 times higher and beef is 73 times higher. One kilogram of beef protein has a carbon opportunity cost of 1,250 kilograms, according to the report. That, incredibly, is roughly equal to one passenger flying from London to New York return. If that figure is anywhere near accurate, then cutting down our meat consumption could be the single biggest thing that we can do to help reduce our own emissions. That's all for this week. I hope you found it interesting, and if so, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone who you think might also be interested. Have a great week, and I'll be back next Monday with another episode of Climate Change Weekly. I know the change in me goes deeper day by day Although you're by my side I feel you slip away so restless, can't seem to concentrate Till you come back to me, that will be my fate I need love